Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. We are here to defend and to promote public education. That's education that's public in purpose and outcome. Above all, our public schools are open in access. They're completely transparent. They have values which produce the common good, children who will promote the common good and who fit into a democracy where the common good matters. Uh, Our public schools should be owned and controlled by the public through their elected representatives, but unfortunately we have private-public partnerships, which are just not good enough. And our public schools should be the only ones that are publicly funded. And the government should, like in Finland and Germany and many other countries, produce for every child in this country a first-rate public education. Well, we know it's not happening, but we know that we have to continually fight to let this happen. And in some places it is happening. And we still have a public education system which has served this country well and which is doing its best to continue to do so. We have a website at www.adogs.info and we put up a press release pretty well every week. This week hopefully there will be two press releases go up but this is the first one. Press release 618. Simon Birmingham replaces Pine as Federal Minister for Education. Perhaps the most positive thing that dogs can say about Simon Birmingham, the new Minister for Education in the Federal Sphere, is that he attended public schools. So hopefully he has more idea than most of his Liberal Party colleagues about public education. The crucial question is, of course, what schools do his daughters Matilda and Amelia attend? That said, There is to date no evidence of any change of federal education policy in relation to funding of the public sector. Birmingham may indulge in softer rhetoric and his indicated sensitivity to the rorts in the private vocational sector are interesting, but there's no evidence of commitment to anything other than the tired liberal market ideology. His plans include pushing for the Commonwealth to take over responsibilities for funding vocational education, including TAFE colleges, from the states. Bill Shorten, 
has identified higher education as a key policy battleground for the coming election, promising to reverse proposed spending cuts. So, after the Pine fiasco, Birmingham is spruiking the collaborative consultative rhetoric. Invented by the Labor Party, by the, by the way, as it sold out its values in the 1970s, remember? So, stepping back from tertiary free deregulation, he said, Deregulated fees is clearly one approach the government has put forward, but if there are different models, I'm all ears. As a coalition government under Malcolm Turnbull, he continues, we will be true to our values, but we shouldn't let what we think is the ideal to be the enemy of the good if we can make progress in other ways. Strange statement. Dogs will watch with interest as Turnbull and Birmingham indulge in what Gross calls friendly rather than confrontational fascism. The following information is provided on Birmingham's website. And I'm quoting here from his website. This is the information about him. Simon Birmingham has served as a Liberal Party Senator for South Australia since May 2007. And in December 2014, he was appointed to positions of Assistant Minister for Education and Training. He grew up near Gawler in Adelaide's north on his family's small horse adjustment property. So he's a horsey man. Simon, I'm, I, I have to declare my, my preferences here. I like people who deal with cows rather than horses. <laughs> um, a bit wary of the horsey lot. Simon was educated at government schools. So that's the interesting thing because it's very unusual uh, Mr Turnbull, as we know, went to um, Sydney Grammar. And he went on then to study at the University of Adelaide. But what did he do at the University of Adelaide? He completed a Master's of Business Administration. So he's been through the New Right Ideologue, Ideologues um, Business School, I would imagine. Prior to entering the Senate... Simon Birmingham worked for a number of industry bodies, establishing particular experience in the wine, tourism and hospitality sectors. So that's interesting. In 2010, he was appointed to the Shadow Ministry, serving as Shadow Parliamentary Secretary for the Murray-Darling Basin and the Environment until the 2013 election. So it'll be very interesting to see how he gets on with the gentleman uh, from the uh, uh, country party who wants to look after the uh, people, the farmers on the Murray, before it gets into South Australia. Because there's a bit of a difference there, isn't there, between the interests of the South Australians and the Victorians and New South Welshmen on the Murray? So following the change in government in 2013 when Mr Abbott came to power, Birmingham served as Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister for the Environment, that would be Mr Hunt, wouldn't it, with responsibility for water policy, including the Murray-Darling Basin. 
National Parks and the Bureau of Meteorology. Well, we've heard today how Mr Abbott was questioning the Bureau of Meteorology whether or not their evidence for climate change had been rigged. Extraordinary stuff. In 2014, Birmingham was appointed to serve as the Assistant Minister for Education and Training in the Abbott Ministry with specific responsibility for vocational education, apprenticeships, training and skills. And he's an empire builder because he wants to take responsibility from, for that away from the states, which could be a bit of a worry, I believe. Now, before dogs leave this topic, they'd like to remind public education supporters of what we've learned from the Abbott Pine era, when the real agenda of our Conservative government and the Institute of Public Affairs think tank has in store for our children. Uh, and find out what they have in in store for our children. And this was analysed in detail. What what actually we've just been through with Pine, and there's really no evidence that this this gentleman, Birmingham, who's from South Australia, like Pine, and who served under Pine, is going to be all that different. So looking at the Pine era... There's a very interesting analysis by Kelsey Halbert, who's the lecturer in education for the James Cook University. And this occurs in The Conversation, which is an online magazine that comes out of various universities. They they pay for it. And the interesting thing about The Conversation is this online educational journal believes in freedom of information and they give permission to republish their um, productions. So I'm going to ask Robert to tell you what this lady, Kelsey Halbert, has to say about what we have just experienced with Pine. Thank you very much, Jean. You're listening to The Dogs Program here on 3CR, 855 on the AM dial, and indeed podcast over the WWWs. Um, Jean was referring to an article by Kelsey Halbert on the Conversation website, which is rather heating up when it comes to education topics at the moment because we know what we've had and it wasn't any good and we don't know where we're going. Um, Before we discuss later in the program about the likelihoods um, of where we're going in terms of Turnbull and the new administration in Canberra and their attitudes towards education, it's worth pointing out that before the Cabinet reshuffle, um, Christopher Pine uh, was the Minister for Education. Now, he was moved out of that role. Um, and he's been moved into industry, innovation and the science portfolio. Well, it's nice that actually, just for the first time in a long time, Australia actually has a Minister for Science. We haven't had one for a while. But, yeah, the Minister, of course, is Christopher Pine, not necessarily a good friend of the dogs program. Anyway, um, Pine's time in the education portfolio included the review of the Australian curriculum and teacher education. Um, he also shifted the view of higher education from a public to a private good. This was fundamental to what Christopher Pine did. He viewed higher education in particular as a private good. If you get yourself a tertiary education, that's good for you. It's not at all good for the nation, so therefore everyone should pay. The idea of taking education out of the public sphere and putting it into the private sphere, both in terms of funding and and concept, conceptually, is what Pine was all about. Now, Pine's policies were actually underpinned by his particular liberal values. And they, of course, are the free market, 
autonomy and education in Toto as a private commodity. And, of course, this whole process did, in tra- fact, attract a great deal of opposition in the Senate, not least, and certainly here at the Dogs Program, because education um, self-evidently is a public good as well as a particular private good. But Pine came, uh, when he first arrived, to the education portfolio on the back of labour reforms, such as the Gonski School Funding Review and the rollout of Australia's first national curriculum. Now, Pine uh, re treated from the Gonski whole process and rebanded schools reforms as not as Gonski reforms but what he called students first reforms. This included a focus on teacher quality, school autonomy and the strengthening of the curriculum. In January 2014, Pine announced um, a review to, and this I quote, he said, evaluate the robustness, independence and balance of what kids are taught, which of course is referred to as the Australian curriculum. Now, this review process was contentious and politically motivated. It reignited and cemented Pine's place in what we've now called, over the last 20 years, the culture war. Now, just recently, last Friday, in one of his final acts as the education minister, before he was shuffled off to be the minister for science, Pine announced the changes to the curriculum that would be adopted from the review. He said these changes would tackle what he called overcrowding, boost the teaching of phonics and strengthen references to Western influences in Australian history. Now, Pine's push for more more recognition of Judeo-Christian heritage. Now, I'm still not quite sure what that means, um, but his push for recognition of it and getting back to the basics is actually, quite frankly, out of step with 21st century Australia and the new Turnbull government um, seems to be moving away from this. But we'll come back to what is likely to happen um, and and what is changing, um, apart from what Christopher Pine has just decided to do as a parting shot. Now, while the new Colombo plan and the focus on language teaching were to strengthen ties to Asia, the recent changes to the curriculum put in by Pine as he walked out the door actually scrapped the whole idea of Asian perspectives. These changes are a step backwards, which sideline the indigenous knowledge and multicultural values needed for an inclusive global community. Um, In teacher education reforms announced way back in February, there is an emphasis on improving teacher quality through increasing testing and regulation. So that's how apparently Pine says you improve teachers. You test them more and you give them more red tape. A modest amount of funding will support this increased scrutiny, but there is absolutely no investment in resources to support teachers, just money to test them and regulate them. Um, And now we're moving to a contentious thing, which is certainly a topic du jour lately, is university-free deregulation. Now, this is a very movable space, and I think we're going to have to watch this quite closely. But Pine's free market vision for higher education in the past is a policy that drew, in fact, the most criticism and public protest over the last two years. In May 2014, Pine outlined the, and I quote, new vision for higher education based on primarily on fee deregulation. Now, he said, and this is a quote of Christopher Pine's, he says, freeing universities to set their own fees 
rather than having them dictated by government, will encourage competition between higher education institutions. And that means better courses, better teaching and more competitive course pricing. It will result in greater focus on students than ever before in Australia. Um, well, that's a quote uh, that is so contentious, that is so wrong in so many ways, and we've dealt with that in the past. But just, just at a very fundamental level, if you make universities fight each other, fight each other for students, is that in fact the best thing for the country? In fact, does the free market have any role to play in education is a moot point. But History and logic says otherwise. It does indeed. Um, in terms of, you know, not many civilizations have risen on the back of private education systems. Not to mention, of course, all of the evidence from researchers that, and, and international researchers of repute. These people are ideologues of the worst brand. Indeed. Um, but to return to the article by Kelsey Halbert, which is published on The Conversation on September 23rd, she goes on to say, this vision um, of competition equaling better products met with stiff opposition. The policy was one of the bid-ticket items of the Gap Abbott government's first budget. It was a hard sell with many ramifications of past, present and future students. The policy was actually poorly developed and communicated. Now, the Senate, um, over the last two years, has actually blocked these changes twice. And despite claiming that he had the section on his side, organisations such as Universities Australia um, have a long list of conditions on this process. Now, just recently, uh, Bill Shorten announced the Labor Higher Education Policy. It looms as a key battleground for the next election. Meanwhile... Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull acknowledged the need to face the political realities of the Senate's opposition to fee deregulation. And this has actually opened the door further to concessions that move away from what Christopher Pyne has been spruiking over the last two years. But what of the future? Well, innovation through science and technology and investing in teacher quality, not just regulating teacher quality, are important agendas for education. But the transformative potential of school and higher education to prepare Australia for the 21st century requires an alternative vision. Now, the new education minister, Simon Birmingham, of which Jean has just given us a slight a window into, um, was previously the assistant minister of education and training. Just recently, he said he looked forward to working collaboratively, as Jean was saying, to build broad support for any future reforms. These comments indicate an opportunity to nimbly rework Christopher Pine's vision. Let's hope, Robert, that the, that the people in the university sector are not collaborators in the sense that we had so many collaborators in the Second World War. Well, yes, indeed. Um, you're listening to The Dogs Program here on 3CR, 855 on the AMDAR. Um, that's a little bit of an expose on what has happened in the last two years under the reign of Christopher Pine. Um, but what is going to happen in education reform into the future is a question. Now, we don't always have a crystal ball here on The Dogs Program, but there was a very interesting interview that was conducted around the school funding debate um, with the Parliamentary Secretary for Education, uh, the Senator Scott Ryan. And we'd like to actually play some excerpts from that because what he says, I think, gives some indications and pointers into what's likely to be happening and what the battleground is going to be for the dogs into the future. We'll return with, um, with, with the words of the Departmental Secretary and some analysis after, after some Bach. 
Oh, welcome back after some Bach to the Dogs program. It's good to have you here on our little wireless program um, on community radio because we're discussing um, what's going to happen. And we don't know what's going to happen with education um, in Australia because we've got a new regime. We don't quite know what they're talking about, so we have to read the tea leaves. Um, well, I think that might be the case. But what we have here is a very interesting excerpt from an interview done by Fairfax Media um, in The Age on the 23rd of September. It's an interview with the Education, um, the Secretary for Education, um, Scott Ryan. He's a senator. Um, and he's going to help Mr Birmingham do the whole education thing, and he has some views. Now, there was a sort of a, a preparatory green paper put forward about the nature of the way schools are likely to be funded, and uh, Senator Ryan was responding to those. Um, the question was, who gives the money? Not just how much, but who gives it? Is it the states? Is it the federal government? This was all thrown up in the air. And when he was asked this question, who's going to cough up the money, this was Senator Ryan's response. I think we've got to actually take a step beyond um, what you're describing as funding options. It was actually a discussion paper and forms part of a larger discussion paper about reform of the Federation. Now I think every Australian when they uh, come into their state MP's office or federal MP's office to seek assistance with one level of government or the other uh, has experienced the frustration of well it's not our level of government, it's that level of government. Uh, this is a process to take a step back from where we've evolved over 110 years. The Commonwealth does a lot of things it didn't do 20 years ago, let alone 50 years ago, um, and the states have very different demands on their services. So what this is about is actually looking at the roles and functions of both levels of government, not just funding. And that's the prism through which the discussion paper should be considered. Well, that was a nice uh, bit of obfuscation. <laughs> the plain fact of the matter is uh, that the federal government, since state aid was given, and certainly since 1978, has been giving a lot more money to private schools than to public schools. And uh, if they want to talk about needs, I think they should uh, be very, very careful indeed because... We have the gross inequalities that we now have in our education system throughout Australia, not necessarily because of state governments that are responsible for public education under Section 51 of the Constitution, but because of the federal governments, particularly governments like Mr Howard's government and Mr Abbott's government that have favoured the, the private system outrageously. Indeed. Now, Senator Scott Ryan um, is in the process of identifying problems and issues, um, and we'll hear more from him in just a minute. But he, I think, in some ways, correctly identifies the problems and issues, but his solutions that he's offering, and in fact the Liberal Party are offering, are, I think, what we have the greatest contention with. But you don't need to hear that from me. Let's hear it from Senator Ryan himself. The Minister has made clear one of the challenges of the current funding system is there is no single current funding system. There are 17 different funding formulas for Catholic, independent and government schools right across the country. Uh, even under the so-called Gonski plans of Labor, which uh, were not what they claimed to be, uh, there are different amounts for students in every state. Before disadvantage loadings are taken into account, we don't have a single national funding system at the moment. It's, it's simply not the case because there are different heads of agreement and different formulas with different authorities in different states across the country. So from that point of view, some rationalisation, some rationality does need to be brought to it. And the Minister's made that clear previously, well before this discussion paper was released. 
Yes, well, the, the funding system is ridiculous because we have fractionalised our education by giving money to multiple systems. All you have to do is to set up a religion and then you set up a school or a school system. So uh, this is the real problem. If you defund those systems, then you've only got six systems. You've got the six states and, of course, the territories. And um, they're the only groups that, in fact, the uh, federal government, if it wants to have some sort of say in education, they are the ones that have under the constitution the power and the responsibility. So uh, the federal government should only be dealing with six, not, what, 17? Ridiculous. 17 independent Catholic and indeed state school education systems across all the state, bearing in mind, of course, that both the independent and Catholic systems are fundamentally opaque where the money goes, the follow the money powers in, in every state in Australia just don't exist for any system that's not the state school system. In 2008, the, the actual accountability check was done on each school once every 51 years. Mm, it's indeed. ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Well, I think what, uh, the, um, what, what, what Senator Ryan is actually identifying is a perfectly reasonable thing, but what's he going to do about it? Let's return to the Senator. The government has always supported needs-based funding. Um, we supported that in opposition. It is important to, to note, however, that what was legislated by the previous government isn't exactly what David Gonski and his panel proposed. There are some technical differences, and that's reflected partly in the different formulas across the different states. Uh, so we've supported needs-based funding, but in opposition uh, we did not support uh, the promises in the out years, in years five and six. Uh, the money wasn't there for them. If I make you a promise, Chris, to give you a million dollars tomorrow and you know I don't have it, um, then quite frankly it's not a promise you should take seriously and people shouldn't um, take the Labor promises seriously. And that's actually reflected in Bill Shorten just yesterday admitting he's not going to put the money in because it's not there. Well, I think the answer to the question is what Senator Ryan going to do about all these problems I think comes down to pure politics. The answer, I think, is functionally nothing. Nothing at all. He's going to blame someone else. Well, they've never had a real needs policy. The needs, any needs policies may have been made nonsense of by the private schools who have made it very quickly into a greeds policy. And that's what we've got now. We've got inequalities which Gonski uh, found quite extraordinary. Indeed. In fact, he warned, if we don't do something about it, we're likely to have a revolution. And those are his words, not, not mine. But um, let's return to Senator Ryan. Um, let's see if we can get any more detail out of him about what they're going to do. We, we, uh, we think rationality needs to be brought to the system. Um, when I've had uh, parents and schools come to me from different states, as I'm sure my colleagues have, saying, well, why is a school per student funding here for the same needs different to another state? And that's a legacy issue, and that's part of all those different range of agreements that exist. We don't have a single national funding system. Um, the Coalition supports needs-based funding. We've always supported school and parent choice, uh, a strong independent non-government sector, uh, because that gives parents and families the, the, the choice and the, the ability to choose the most appropriate educational environment for their children. Um, one of the things this government has done that the previous government left uh, whole with was we had to find $1.2 billion to put back into the system just to ensure that the current levels of funding for all states were reflected in the budget because Labor took money for Queensland, the Northern Territory and Western Australia out before the last election. They could have rationality if they learned from places like Finland tomorrow and they even took notice of what people on Q&A this week were asking for. 
public schools that are publicly funded and private schools. Well, one lady wanted to have them uh, declared um, illegal. I don't think that's uh, necessary. You just don't fund them with public money and you would save a lot of money and we would educate our children properly. Very rational. Well, the whole illegal argument is very simple because, in fact, it is in Finland illegal to charge money for education. Education is so valuable that you're not allowed to charge money for it. That is something that the people together collectively have a a responsibility for. What's irrational in the Australian system is the duplication, triplication, quadruplication of facilities. It's ridiculous. Well, I think it's fascinating that the Parliamentary Secretary um, and Assistant to the Education Minister, Mr Ryan, the first thing he talks about when funding is giving, making sure that money keeps going to private schools. He hasn't actually mentioned state schools once except in passing, which I think is fascinating. But let's return to the Minister, see if again we can get some more detail about what's likely to happen. Well, one one of the challenges, for example, has been in the press lately, and that's around funding for students with uh, learning challenges or students with disabilities, it's often referred to as. Um, Now, there have been different data collections in every state. There have been different measures of this in every state. Um, One of the inequities has been, for example, uh, a child with a particular disability will get more funding at a state school, uh, in a public school in some states, next door to, for example, a Catholic primary school. So one of the things we are funding, and it's happening this year, is the first full national data collection to get a real national picture on what those extra needs are. Uh, And the Commonwealth has increased, and under this government we've increased, for example, our funding for students with disabilities. Uh, And that that will likely continue continue to increase as this data set becomes more available. One of the challenges here is that we don't always know where some of these uh, disadvantages uh, are located within our education system. Oh, my goodness. He still hasn't actually mentioned state schools in this entire interview. He's talking about funding for schools. He hasn't mentioned state schools. In fact, he's talking about all those poor people with disabilities who are in the private school system. (laughs) But there aren't... I mean, there's very few there in the first place because in the private school system, they don't want students with disabilities in the private school system. They'll... They'll, 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 they'll affect the values of the private school to start with. Uh, and, of course, as, as the minister's quite saying, there's no money in it, so they all have to go to the state school. Absolutely fascinating. Um, I think what we're getting from the minister is it's the same old, same old. There's not Mr Christopher Pine there with his smile grinning at us telling us that um, everything's private is good and everything public is bad, but it seems like the rhetoric hasn't changed. What do you think, Jen? I think the only thing he's really interested in with state schools is to make them into private schools. Uh, with the, t- the talk about the autonomy. So the autonomy policy uh, with so-called independent government schools, I mean, really, I ask you, um, I think that that is still very much on the, uh, on the agenda, isn't it? It is indeed. Well, um, that was the minister, or the assistant minister, that was um, uh, Mr. Senator Ryan, who's the assistant, par- the parliamentary secretary assisting the education minister. And we've done those extracts from... Assisting. The Age website and the Fairfax Media would like to thank and acknowledge them for having that interview because it does give us, in fact, some insight into where things are likely to be going. I think he's this, the minister assisting the private school interests. That's what I think. Well, that, that certainly sounds is. like what he's interested in because he did not actually specifically mention kids in the state schools once <laughs> and he's supposed to be the minister for them. 
It's all rather sad, really. Um, you listen to the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools because, as we've just heard, they are continuing to be under constant attack, no matter how much Mr Turnbull, the Prime Minister, smiles at me. Um, it's the substance that matters. As he himself says, it's not about, it's not about politics, it's about policy. Well, having, ex- having examined um, the policy, all I'm getting from that particular centre is two things. The first thing is we need more assessment, we need more data, we need to have another review, another review. And the second thing I'm getting is that he's very interested in all those children in private schools and I don't think he's interested in the state school system at all, which isn't surprising with the coalition government. But, um, oh well, we held out some hope, but now the fight must go on. Well, we were hoping, of course, for some good things from the Andrews Molino government, but... um I've just heard that uh, the Auditor General, who was looking at the um, follow the money power. follow the money in the private schools, uh, has um, had a bit of a, yes, a set yes, to yes. and He's has resigned. finally resigned. He's resigned, and, it, and whether that report is ever released will be a moot point. I'm still waiting for it. It was due out about now, actually. Um, he's resigned. I, I hope that we can find out a little bit more from the Auditor General's department than mm. we know, which is almost nothing, about where education funding money goes. Particularly around the uh, the very interesting uh, pool in the Catholic Education Office, Robert, well, I and think, a few other schools too. I think in the end, and we, we investigated this in some detail on last week's program, if you have a system where the government provides money for education and the provider of that education is a private entity, you have indeed uh, the capacity for corruption, which is what's happened in the VET courses here in Victoria to to a quite shocking degree. But the conditions in terms of providing uh, government money to the private education system, both independent and Catholic, has even greater opacity. It has even greater sort of murkiness and muddiness. We're not allowed to know where that money goes as taxpayers. And if you set up situations where corruption is possible... You should not be surprised if that's exactly what happens. Um, it's, it's quite sad, really. But you're listening to The Dogs Program here on 3CR, 855 on the AM dial. We'll be continuing to investigate uh, issues around education, funding, and indeed the children of Australia after these messages. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions, and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm the proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. Our education is not for profit. Our education is not for profit. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Well, on the Dogs Program today, we've done some investigating of the new education minister, Simon Birmingham, and the policies that, well, we're trying to work out what they are, but we've got some idea having listened to Senator Ryan, the Assistant uh, Secretary to Education in the recently appointed um, the Turnbull administration or government or cabal or, or pogrom. I don't, I, I, don't know, I don't know what to call them. But, but I think we'll move on now. I think we'll move on now oh, because Jean promised us two press releases and we've only had one. So, Jean, what else has been going on? 
Yes, well, if you go to www.adogs.info, there's a press release 619. Now, listeners, when you're like the dogs, particularly when you're a bit like me and you're a log in the tooth and you've been around for yonks, you get to the point where you can actually say, we told you so. (laughs) It's not... Not necessarily a pleasant thing to do, but you can say, uh, we told you that this would happen. But, of course, the important thing is, what are people going to do about it? Mm. Now, this is press release 619, and uh, it's at www.adogs.info. And it is, social segregation is increasing as a result of state aid to private schools. Since 1964, dogs have opposed state aid to private religious schools because they segregate children on the basis not just of religion but ability to pay, their ethnicity and social mores. This leads to both the pillarisation and the polarisation of our society. And this has deleterious effects, I think you will agree including the inequalities and tribalism that we are now experiencing. For more than a century, our public schools kept both pillarisation and polarisation of our society to a minimum. We're not saying it wasn't there. There was sectarianism because of the division of 20% 20 of our children into Catholic and other schools, elite schools. But it wasn't as great as it is at the moment. It's now running at between 35 and 40% in some states. But things have changed radically and for the worse. Educationists are finally waking up that perhaps the dogs were right about segregation. But unfortunately, they're still romancing about needs policies being the answer. They've not yet reached the dogs' position that the only way forward is to withdraw public funding from schools that divide children on the basis of religion, ethnicity, social mores or ability to pay. Nevertheless, The research interest that is coming from the Save Our Schools website and other websites is of interest. Trevor Cobald of Save Our Schools points to research recently done by the University of Technology Sydney's Dr Christina Ho, which shows that a highly divided education system in New South Wales with some elite private schools operating as virtually monocultural bastions of whiteness, Mm -hmm. while public schools, including selective schools, are sometimes overwhelmingly dominated by students from language backgrounds other than English. Ho has found that students from language backgrounds other than English, which is called LBOTE, from more than half of all the enrolments in Sydney's public high schools that's 52%, compared to 37% in Catholic schools and only 22% in independent schools. So they're very interesting figures. It's not just the elite schools that are white, it's also the Catholic schools that are whiter than the public schools. So schools are becoming more segregated in terms of both class and ethnicity and this has serious implications for equity in education and for multiculturalism and social cohesion. Now the dogs have been warning about this 
I'd like to remind you, since 1964, because putting the children together in schools is what makes a difference. I guarantee it would have made a difference in Syria and it would certainly make a difference in Australia and it certainly would have made a difference in Ireland given their tragic sectarian history and bloodletting. Now, census data, according to Ho, shows that approximately 30% of residents of the lower North Shore of Sydney spoke a language other than English at home in 2011. And this means that on average, the private schools in this region are disproportionately Anglo-Australian, while the public schools are disproportionately non-Anglo-Australian. Well, let's say Anglo-Celtic Australian, because a lot of these people from overseas don't understand the Celtic fringe. Now, the pattern of ethnic segregation is also evident, although to a lesser extent, in other areas. For example, the inner West Burwood-Strathfield region is a more culturally diverse area overall, with 64% speaking a language other than English, but the schools are ethnically polarised. In the public high schools, an average of 80% of students are non-English speaking as their first language, while in private schools, it's about half that figure. And Ho concludes, from the basis on her research, more and more students are going to schools that do not represent the range of people in their neighbourhood, but rather a select group. Their families have chosen to enrol them in schools where there are more people like us. In providing more school choice for parents... The government has created a marketplace in schools that are leading to self-segregation. That's what choice means, doesn't it? It's choice to join the tribe. And I'm quite sure that Mr Turnbull, the ex-grammar school boy with the private schools in his DNA, all those poor, poor battling parents like his father... Well, um, more and more students we're finding are self-segregating or parents. Ho found a sharp contrast in the social composition of selective public schools and elite private schools. In, in New South Wales, you have more selective high schools uh, selected on the basis of ability than you do in, in Melbourne. Uh, she identified 11 private high schools in the North Shore area where the proportion of students from language backgrounds other than English was at or below 20%. But Queenswood School for Girls in Mossman, which is selective on the basis of girls, had the lowest share, 2%, followed by St Ignatius College Riverview in Lane Cove, 5%, and Monte St Angelo Mercy College in North Sydney of 6%. In contrast, the proportion of students from a language background other than English in two selective public high schools in the same area, North Sydney Boys and North Sydney Girls, which are perhaps two of the um, high schools in Australia that have very, very high uh, level of results, these uh, schools have above 90% of children who don't speak English at home. 
as the first language. As Ho told the Sydney Morning Herald, you can walk between some of these schools in a few minutes and yet one is like a white bubble and the other's like a non-white bubble. So data from the My School website also shows very strong social segregation between public and private schools nationally. The public schools in Australia have a much greater proportion of students from low-income families and a much smaller proportion from high-income families compared to either Catholic or independent schools. And yet Mr Pine was listening to people who were saying that even the, the few people who are... Uh, in the upper echelons of income that send their children to public schools that they should be paying fees. Very amusing. In 2013, low-income students comprised 30% of all public school enrolments enrollments, compared to only 15% in Catholic schools and only 9% in independent schools. In contrast, high-income students comprised 21% of public school enrolments compared with 29% of Catholic enrolments and 47% of independent school enrolments. Howe says that school choice and increasing social segregation has significant implications for education and society. Well, thank goodness somebody is finally agreeing with the dogs. We have been saying this for years and years and Unfortunately, Australia is now reaping the rewards of state aid for schools that segregate children. But Ho says there's now substantial evidence, not just from around Australia but from around the world, that the creation of a marketplace in schools increases inequality between richer and poorer schools and between richer and poorer students. This is obviously the research that the Secretary for Education, assisting Mr Birmingham from the Senate, doesn't want to know about because he's certainly not referring to it in the interview that we heard earlier. But the OECD report entitled titled Equity and Quality in Education states the following. Providing full parental school choice can result in segregating students by ability, socioeconomic background and generate greater inequities across education systems. It's logical. It's historical. It's research-based. It's factual. Perhaps Mr Birmingham and his offsider in the coalition should actually do a little bit of fact-searching homework. Now, Ho is also arguing that in a multicultural society like Australia, it's unnatural and unhealthy for our schools to be so ethnically divided. Dogs believe it is a tragedy and we are looking at problems that are just waiting to happen. In private schools that are overwhelmingly Anglo-dominated, let's say Anglo-Celtic dominated, students are not being given sufficient opportunities to develop cross-cultural awareness and skills that can only be developed through everyday encounters and friendships with people from other backgrounds. 
On the other hand, in public schools, especially selective schools where the majority Anglo population are all but absent again, students are not exposed to the multicultural social environment that they need to engage with when they leave school. There are also concerns about who gains access to well-resourced schools and whether some schools may be reproducing highly exclusive social networks with into the future. Well, that's been going on. I mean, where else does uh, Mr Turnbull come from and how did he finally get himself into position? He believed when he was at Sydney Grammar that the uh, Prime Ministership was his by right, didn't he? Now, increasing social segregation in Australia has been driven by government funding policies. Finally, we're getting to it. Designed to promote school choice. As Ho says, school choice has been a powerful mantra in Australian government policy on education for decades, and it's not going away any time soon. However, instead of improving school performance, it's led to greater inequalities between the rich and the poor schools. So that's very interesting, and we've also put up on our website the actual findings of um, Ho, People Like Us, School Choice, Multiculturalism and Segregation in Sydney. And very interesting, the article is too. So if you go to our press release 619, yes, that's right, 619. We've been around for a while and we do it. We're still in there working and doing our research and presenting it to you. Um, you can read further about this. However, I'd like to say a little bit of good news. My grandson goes to the local state school. It's Errol Street, North Melbourne. And when I go to collect him, I go into a playground which is like a league of nations and he is getting a wonderful multicultural, cultural education. And we are very fortunate these schools are still around and we must fight for them. They are very valuable. Thank you very much, Jane. You're listening to The Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. And just to finish up, um, we often hear a discussion about values. Uh, this is matter of choice. And alongside the matter of choice comes the matter of values. Um, private schools often project themselves as having a values that state schools do not. State schools are values-free. Private schools are, are values... Oh, I don't know. They're, they're imbued with various values. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, the choice to have your child brought up with values is an obvious one. So you have to spend the money and send them to a private school. But um, I... Values of secrecy, well, especially yes. in funding and other matters. Well, it's the other matters that I'm going to talk about now because there's a very interesting article written in The Age on the 13th of September, and I'm bringing it to our attention now because I think it's relevant. It was written by Judy Crow. Now, Judy Crow is not nobody. Judy Crow is the president of the Victorian Association for State Secondary Principles, and she's addressed this question of values head-on. Um, and she's talking indeed, and I quote, about the revelations of the Royal Commission about child sexual abuse that have been taking place in Victoria, in Geelong, in Ballarat, in Mortlake, St Kilda East, and indeed in many Sydney schools. And there have been abhorrent and indicative of the cultures that are completely out of step with the expectations of the broader communities. Now, what she's referring to, she's talking about the most basic responsibility 
of schools to ensure the safety of children in order that they can thrive educationally and socially. And she says, sadly, there are occasionally some warped and devious adults who can be attracted to roles within schools in all sectors. That's independent, Catholic and state schools. There has to be, she says, an absolute intolerance of such adults who have the potential to insidiously groom children and wreck the lives of those children. Now, she says, schools need to have cultures that are alert to such individuals. Ideally, all members of school communities should have multiple avenues to raise concerns. Responses to allegations of inappropriate behaviour must, must be immediate and fair to protect the rights of all. Processes to deal with such matters must be clear and transparent. And she says she has seen firsthand the trauma surrounding the allegations of inappropriate sexual behaviour. Now, she is a principal of 20 years' experience, and she's received and dealt with a number of serious concerns and complaints about sexual abuse made by parents by teachers, by students, or as a principal. And she says that all principals across all sectors would have had similar experiences. Now, from her point of view, these complaints and concerns have been dealt with immediately following the mandatory reporting guidelines and at times directly involving the police. Now, she says our state schools have copped criticism from the highest political level implying that state schools do not have values. Parents may opt for an educational institution as seen as more privileged, where they believe their children will form the right social context and where, I quote, discipline is seen to be stronger. <laughs> now, the cluster of abuse revealed in the Royal Commission indicates another story. As the recommendations of the Parliament of Victoria's recent Betrayal of Trust report, child safety standards are being mandated to apply across all school sectors. The guidelines have been long accepted in state schools Indeed. and are now to be applied to the non-government sector, finally. Yes, they've been there for years. You could now, always deal with these matters. all Victorian schools will be required to have consistent policies in place for responding to child abuse allegations. Now, reforms in the criminal justice area now define new offences to apply where those in authority have negligently failed to protect children, knowing the risk of abuse by someone in the school. Now, for decades, principals in government schools have had access to training in mandatory reporting, and I have to add, as a teacher in the state school system, I have also had access to training in mandatory reporting and the opportunity to consult with specialist staff within the education department to assist them to work through the very complex and distressing circumstances where there are suspicions of abuse. Now, processes for responding to and reporting suspected harm to children are clear and non-negotiable in the state school sector. Now, being part of a broader state education system provides parents and teachers with multiple avenues to raise concerns at the school, at the regional level, and indeed at the system level. Possible perpetrators can be deterred from seeking employment in our schools because scrutiny and employment regulations are strong. State schools are embedded in their local communities. They are open to criticism and are less hierarchical than non-government schools. 
They are proponents of contemporary social values and unfettered by the blind trust in authority inherent in many religious schools. Oh, good honour. Their secular nature promotes open conversations about sensitive issues. Now, state schools operate with school councils where the majority of members are elected parents and staff, often with student memberships. They are required to have consultative committees where staff members are able to participate in decision-making about the school's operations. The stakes for government schools are not so high with respect to reputational damage because government schools do not depend on large financial contributions from parents and alumni. The desire to protect, and I quote, elite reputations appears to have been a significant factor in the recent publicised allegations of childhood sexual abuse. Teachers and students seem to have been fearful of reprisals for speaking up and therefore damaging the elite reputation well, of Geelong, the private school. At Geelong Grammar, you, um, you just got sacked. You just got um, expelled. In government schools... Transparency of information about all operations is mandated through the education department. Accountability through systemic requirements is a safeguard to all members of the school's community. Now, Judy Crow says the Royal Commission has exposed circumstances that allowed abhorrent behaviours to flourish. More open communication within schools and clear accountability processes that extend beyond individual schools do provide some protection from abusive parents for children. More consultative collaboration or leadership can help minimise risk. And we, in the state school, encourage families to speak up about these issues. Now, she's talking about the values of a state education system. And what she's talking about is, of course, open accountability, which does not seem to have existed in this particularly shocking case in many, many, many private schools. Well, on that interesting note about the values of state schools, very forcefully put by Judy Crow, um, we're going to end the program because we've come to the end of it. But um, it's been great to have your company. Of course, we'll be back next week. If you're interested in what we're doing here to defend public schools, you can find out more about us, the dogs, the defenders of government schools, at our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But until next week, and we'll see, we'll have a watching brief on our new federal government about educational issues. Until next week, um, it's bye for now. Bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead I never died, says he I never died, says he In Salt Lake City, Joe, says I Him standing by my bed they framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The cop 
Our bosses killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe. I didn't die, says Joe. I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe. What they can never kill. Went on to organize. Went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you find your hill. It's there you find. Dead. I never died, says he.